Attention retail solution providers. Rethink Retail is looking for the next generation of retail technology. By participating in our next-gen retail tech program, you'll put your solutions in front of the eyes of thousands of retailers, while also gaining industry recognition and a spot to compete for the title of hottest tech of the year. So if you're ready to be next, be sure to check out the link in the show notes of this episode, or you can email us directly at media at rethink.industries. Good luck and may the best in tech win. Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick-and-mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rethink Retail Podcast. I'm your host today, Paula Rosenblum, and I'm speaking with my guest, Chris Fox, Chief Sustainability Officer at Haynes Brands. Hi, Chris. Hi, Paula. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Great. Nice to meet you. Chris has an extensive history working with Haynes Brands and has been a key player in implementing and seeing progress towards the Haynes Brands sustainability goals across three core pillars, people, planet, and product, which I think is a really nice triad, to be honest with you. Yeah, so welcome, great. Chris. Well, thank you again. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. So let's let's just dive right in with some questions, if that's okay with you. Yeah, terrific. You have a long history with Haynes Brands, I understand. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming Chief yeah. Sustainability Officer? Yeah, ha happy to, Paula. And yeah, I go back with the company a long way. I've been here almost 25 years. I'm actually, and I've laughingly said in front of a, a number of groups recently, I'm, I, I might be your audience's worst nightmare. I'm a lawyer by trade, right? So that's what I, that's what I, that's what I grew up doing. No, but seriously, I've, I, I've been here for, for 25 years for, for much of that, but for about the last two and a half to three years, um, did report up through the general counsel. Um, and, um, and for us, that made a good bit of sense. A, a, a good portion of my career here, about 15 years or so. I was actually the the VP of corporate social responsibility um, and did a, a lot of more traditional kind of compliance work on everything from factory compliance to our internal ethics program, environmental work, more from a regulatory perspective. But but over time and, and as I sat in that seat for, for candidly kind of as, as long as I did, and the issues became uh, more complex, they're, they're broader. And, and the recognition that, that the stakeholder demands out there were ever increasing. The decision made about the time, and we can talk about it a little bit more as we move along, but at about the time we set our next round of sustainability goals, the goals that are on the page right now, I, I was given the title of Chief Sustainability Officer. And at the same time, for the first time in my career that I wasn't reporting to a lawyer, I actually report into the business now and, and uh, report to a gentleman named Mike Faircloth, who is the global head of our supply chain. And, and why that makes particular sense for, for us, and again, we can kind of flush this out as we move along some more, is we're really unique in the apparel industry in that about 70%, about two-thirds 
but about, about two thirds to 70% of our total unit volume comes out of factories that we actually own. And so it's our brick and mortar. And that's way different for or than most of the apparel industry that contracts 100% of their capacity. So an awful lot of the sustainability, but ESG issues are embedded in supply chains. And so for us, it's, it's made perfect sense for, for me to formally report to Mike. Although for the last, I don't know, seven, eight, 10 years, I'd really been dot lining to them even while I was in legal. I've worked very, very closely with our supply chain for many years. You know, the last, the last brand management that I can remember where they owned their own factories was Liz Claiborne. And that was years and years and years ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. There are a couple of others out there with similar models to us, but we are, we are definitely the exception. And, and that's, that's had us look at sustainability for decades, literally, right? Through a really different lens than folks that simply issue POs and have products shipped to them. And again, happy to flush that out a little bit more as we move along. Yeah, clearly you don't have what they call plausible deniability if it's yours. No, we you most definitely don't have plausible. De- Not that anybody's got that anymore. We definitely don't have that, right? So, um, no, it's a big advantage. It's a big advantage on a whole range of levels from from business to cost, uh, but, but also to to how we manage those three pillars, people, planet, and product, right? There, there, there are buildings, there are management teams, there are our employees. We very much see them as our communities where all our people are living and working, right? Raising their kids. So that uh, would answer a question I had buried in my head a little bit, which was how do you manage confirming compliance? And if they're your factories, they're your people. And Well, well, one, the, the mere fact that they're your management teams as well, and you've got direct day-to-day right. oversight of those factories, right. it, it, it clearly makes a difference. But when it comes to, you know, you kind of drill down a little bit further into that and, and you talk about how we audit factories from a labor compliance perspective, we actually audit our own facilities against the exact same tools as we audit that remaining 30% or so of factories that we do contract with. So we hold ourselves to the exact same standards that we hold all facilities globally, whether we own them or whether we contract. That's very cool. I've really gotten into sustainability and apparel over the last year or so, but uh, what do you see at Haynes Brands as the biggest challenges facing the industry when it comes to sustainability and corporate responsibility? Yeah, no, I think it certainly bucketed them into a, into a few. One is, and again, for us, it's, it's different because we have control of a lot of it, but it's still people. I think we see that people pillar really as the most important pillar of the three. At the end of the day, everything that we're doing, right, is, is, is about people. You know, focusing heavily on that, focusing heavily on running facilities the way we expect them to be run and the way those outside looking in expect them to be run and running world-class facilities, working with world-class operators still today, you know, 25 years later. And and again, I've, I've been dealing with labor compliance issues, factory compliance issues for almost the entire 25 years I've been here. So that that continues to be uh, a, a critical piece of the puzzle. But like the rest of us too, and the rest of us being us individually and lots of other industries, um, climate and, and what are we going to do 
both as a company and as an industry to, to do our part to mitigate climate change. We've set science-based targets, really aggressive ones, and we're, we're expecting to get final approval of those here very, very shortly. We want to, to reduce our scope one and one and two emissions by 2030 by 50% off of a 2019 baseline. So call it about a 10 year run, reducing scope one and two by, by 50% and scope three by 30. And the biggest challenge in there, and, and again, same for us as it is for many others in this industry and others, it's scope three. That's, that's the real challenge, right? Is getting your arms around it, understanding for, for us, you know, the, the missions that are being generated out of your supply chain in particular and the transportation used to move goods around is, is what we're really focusing on. But really getting good data and getting your arms around your scope three impacts is, is, is a doable exercise, but, but it's a challenging one and, and one that we're certainly committed to. How do you deal on, and this is an indirect thing that a lot of people don't think about, but die, die runoff into the water. Which, mm-hmm. which ultimately affects the climate. It, it's a cause, it's not an effect. Uh, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Well, again, back to our, our own model. So, you know, roughly 70% of our total unit volume comes out of textile facilities that we actually own or have, have almost direct control over. We have for, for decades, Paula, had very aggressive wastewater treatment standards. And we talk about that if, and if you or and or your viewers would, would go to HBI Sustains or our reporting site, you'll see a section under planet on what we do around wastewater. So we have for many, many years really focused heavily. Again, think we've, we've got two big textile mills, one in DR, one in El Salvador that employ thousands of people. And it's those thousands of people and their families and their kids that are living in those communities. So we, we feel very strongly about, about doing what is right in, in how we manage wastewater treatment and what we're discharging into particular into rivers. I really want to encourage our listeners to pay close attention to this because I think the whole issue of wastewater gets lost. It gets, I think you're it right. gets lost amid, you know, well, what do we do with the excess product? But wastewater, the whole upfront process, I think is something that's, that's not talked about enough. So I'm delighted yep. to hear that you guys have been really focused on it. Yeah. Can, can you tell a story or share a story about a particular sustainability project or initiative that you're really proud of and that, and why it was so meaningful to you? Now, I already gathered because you're doing work in this hemisphere, it feels close to you. And I get that. Yeah. Part, but I think that's one. Is it okay if I give you two? How about if I give you two? The, the first one's our Great for Good program, and that's a program we started about 10 years or so ago, where instead of literally throwing out plant waste, oftentimes stuff off of the, the cutting room floor, and instead of landfilling it, we sell it off to recyclers. And with that, we generate about $2 million a year, and we take about half of that, and that is what we use to fund our community development programs around the world. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so it's it's literally one part of our sustainability program funding another part of our sustainability program. And so we've done things like had surgical medical brigades. We've put 3,500 of our sewing machine operators through a high school GED program in Latin America. The, the second one is one that's literally just kicking off next week. 
and we're calling it the I'm in campaign. And it's I'm in for sustainability. And so what we're going to do is launch across all 50,000 of our employees an opportunity to literally say, I'm in and give them a menu of options under each of the three pillars of things that they can do individually to support sustainability efforts. Not just what the company's doing, but what they can do on their in, on and in their individual lives. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's it's really neat. And 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 under people think of things, and we're talking about trying to do some really simple things to start. Donate a pint of blood. Donate eight hours of your time in the local community. In Planet, it's washing cold water because washing cold has such an impact on on greenhouse gas emissions. Products, it uses organic cottons or use more sustainable cottons, buy more sustainable cottons or things like donating clothes to, to your local charity. And so the idea here is, is how do we get 50,000 people to sign on to a commitment and, and a whole bunch of people do relatively small things that total up to something that makes a real difference. And so the idea is to engage our employees, get them on board, get them on the sustainability train and giving them the opportunity to, to actually jump on the train and, and participate as well. And, That's uh, really nice. You know, I, I, I had to get a new car very suddenly because I was in a car accident and now uh, I'm sorry, I had, hope you're okay. Yeah, I am. It was, it took me a couple months because I had a really bad concussion. And so in this sort of dazed state, I went out and I bought what turns out to be the biggest gas guzzler I've ever had. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. So it wasn't like I had a lot of choices either. Right. 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 And I've been thinking lately, you know, this isn't fair of me. This thing's getting 15 miles to a gallon and it's just not fair. So I'm thinking about selling it. So I can relate to what you're saying is that I have to stop abstracting myself from it and put ourselves individually in it. I, I yep. agree with you. That's really and, wonderful. And, and, and I think what's really neat about this too is um, candidly, when we, when we pitched this to our senior management team, and this was only about a month or so ago, Paula, and kind of took them through the concept, took them through the kind of the campaign materials that we're going to use literally around the world. Their immediate response was, man, that, honestly, that is really cool. How do we also get the consumers that are buying our products to participate in a program like that? Well, that's a great thought. Yeah. And we, we, we thought it was too. So, you know, again, kind of the, the, the main point being there, how do we, how do we get more active participation of people, whether there are employees or whether or not there are folks that are buying our product, how do we get them actively involved versus passively reading reports or, or looking at news? And, and how do we take small actions, lever them up in, into big numbers that can make a big difference? You know, education's a big deal because I had never really thought much about sustainability and fashion until I started reading actually about Ms. McCartney's work through Business of Fashion. And, and I think it's a big deal now. And I'm really warming up to it. But you've led me into kind of halfway through my next question, which is, can you discuss Haynes Brand's future sustainability goals? and how the company plans to achieve them. And I think you've been through a lot of that already. And also, if you could talk about the amazing progress the brand has made in 21 and 22 towards those goals. I know that yeah. everyone wants to hear that stuff. For yeah, real. No, you know, this isn't greenwashing. This is real. Yeah. And, and, and we've been 
We've been very mindful of that, Paula, because I do think that there are companies out there that that are over-promising and under-delivering. And so, you know, our, when we were setting these goals, benchmarking these goals, setting them now two and a half years ago, we were really focused on making every one of them objective. So how is it, how can we apply a metric to it? And how can we gather the data appropriately to support it? And, and then how can we transparently report or progress against it? So we, we've been really focused on quantifiable goals and think that that's really important because the number is the number is the number. And, and, and the more you're focused on the objective, I think the less that you can be accused of greenwashing candidates. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for us and people, our, our goal is to, is to improve the lives of at least 10 million people by 2030. And a lot of that work to date, and, and to date, we, we believe after the first two years, we're already at 2.7 million of that 10. And a lot of that is through the very large product donations that we make. You know, last year, we donated about eight and a half million pieces of essential clothing to, to people in need, in particular around disaster areas and post-disaster recovery. In, in Planet, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, set science-based targets. 50% reduction by 2030 of scope one and two, 30% by, by 2034 scope three. And really pleased to report already that we're for scope one and two, we're 30% of that 50% goal, or we're at 30% of that 50% goal. So a, a lot of really, really good progress so far there. And, and product, our goal is to use 100% sustainable cotton and recycled or biodegradable poly and make a big dent in reducing packaging waste and single-use plastics. And today, because because of that own supply chain model, just about everything that we are making in the Western Hemisphere, and, and again, kind of think of those two textile mills in, in DR and El Salvador, that is all a U.S. cotton flow. So that is U.S. farmed cotton. It's made into yarn here in the U.S. And it goes in yarn form down to the textile mills to be made into fabric, cut, sewn, and, and largely brought back here to the States. But that U.S. cotton flow, U.S. cotton is by far the, the most sustainably grown conventional cotton that, that exists in the world. That's so wonderful to hear. Um, I have a feeling you guys are members of the AAPN or the Pro-Americas group. I think I've seen you there, Mike Dodaro's group. And they talk about how all the hidden costs associated with sourcing halfway across the world. Forgetting about the Uyghurs and, and all of that stuff. It really isn't cheaper. It really is cheaper to, to just, in the long run, because you can do shorter runs and you can do cleaner lots and on and on and yeah. on. You know, and, place- and the other thing that's important about that in this space, and there are really only two countries right now that can do it, it's, it's the U.S. and Australia, that have bail identification. And, and so we just posted, and, and interesting to go take a look at it, when we refreshed our, our site um, a couple, three weeks ago, we added maps to the transparency section that show, you know, literally on a map, on a 2D map, where the yard's coming from. And underneath that, the cotton gins that are used to make the product. So we've got visibility to a vast majority of our cotton use that is far better 
than folks in particular that are sourcing out of places like Asia. Um, so there are not only logistics benefits, but our ability to see back into our supply chain through that internal Western hemisphere flow in particular is significantly better than it is in other parts of the world. I mean, I, I think that's wonderful because in all honesty, I've always been really bullish on nearshoring. I don't think we can be a company, a country that only consumes and doesn't make anything. I think that's a very bad practice from actually just from a business, forget about politics, just from a business perspective. It's a bad, it's a bad policy. It's a bad practice because you get, we saw what happened in the pandemic. We can't make you a car because the chips are over and God knows where, you know I mean? That, right, right. That's and insane. you can't get them. Right. Yeah, that's insane. I think Chevy had to take back thousands of trucks because they couldn't get a part that they needed to replace in the trucks. And so they just had to take them back. So I think you've already answered my next question, which is how do you ensure that it's supply chain and manufacturing op operations align with your sustainability goals and values? And the answer is you measure them. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You, you measure them, you own a substantial portion of them, you measure them and and then you audit against them. And, and, and again, kind of detailed on the website is, is a lot of detail around how we, how we audit factories for labor and environmental compliance and with not only external resources, but, but our own boots on the ground that are in country, in factories every day. And, and just a good combination of all of that is, is what you need to do to So to, why don't to, you give me the name of that website again, so that our audience can hear. Yeah. Absolutely. It's hbisustains.com. Perfect. Thank you very much. I mean, I think all these things are incredibly important. I really do. And we've got a few minutes left here. So right. the last question is, outside your work at Haynes Brands, what are some ways that you try to live sustainably in your, in your own life? You, um, you know that what advice would you give to individuals who want to make a difference in, in, your, in their own com communities? In, in, in full disclosure, compost toilets aren't my thing. So it isn't going to be that. <laughs> <for me. laughs> you know, I, I did that in Ecuador and it was like, that's another thing. Right? No, I'll tell you one. It's one thing and it's one really simple thing. It's wash your clothes in cold water and not. Well, over 50% of the greenhouse gases emitted over the life cycle of of really any apparel garment, but, but just for example, say a t-shirt from the, the, the cotton that's grown at the farm to when you finally donate it or dispose of it or other, otherwise it's end of life for you. Right. So that entire life cycle, over 50% um, of the greenhouse gases emitted come from heating water in the water. You know, I never would have thought of that. And that's nope. really and a lot back to education, as you said, right? And, 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 and we're working, um, now we have for the last couple, three years, we've literally just re-upped our agreement with P and G and Tide to jointly work, to educate the consumer, to do just that. But, but it's, a, it's going to be an extended education period, right? Because a lot of folks were, were told by. That their parents and their grandparents, right? You wash it not, right? But you really don't need to. And it burns a lot of energy and it burns money too. The P&G estimates you can save, you know, $150 or more or a year just in energy costs by switching to cold. So 
Wash cold. That's it. That's all you got to do. You know, it's cool. And and maybe one thing that you might want to consider, I think Whirlpool is the company that makes all the washers and dryers, no matter what names they have, is partner with them as well yes. so that they have a cycle. Because I never know. I just turn it on normal or I turn it on heavy duty, depending on what I've got in my washing machine. And yeah. I don't think about water temperature, but there should be something very direct that tells me that I can do that here. Because yeah. I would do I, I it bet. way more often. I think it's a great idea, Paula, and we're absolutely talking about that and thinking about how we partner, we being us and, and Tide and P&G, with the washing machine manufacturers as kind of the third leg of that stool. It, it, because the easier that we can make it for the consumer, the more you can educate, the easier you can make it, the more likely you are to change behavior, right? And uh, but, it, but it really is that simple. You know, if, if your washing machine doesn't default to cold, just for me, it's I got to push the button twice. I push the button twice and it goes to cold and I wash in cold religious. That's, that's really, that's really great. And I'm going to do that myself, actually. Awesome. You, you. You've educated me. So I Terrific. think that covers everything we had to talk about. It no, was right, really right. nice to meet you and I really no, enjoyed it tremendously. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode and if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.